You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but... As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this morning we are continuing our look into these First verses from Peter in this transition section from the rejoicing of the gospel at the beginning of the letter and then into some application of the gospel, how the gospel impacts all these areas of your life. And honestly, we're looking probably at a, uh, a really... Uh, astutely avoided section of scripture. Maybe not this specific scripture, like I don't know if people would necessarily know to go to 1 Peter to avoid such topics, but certainly the idea that comes from this passage is one that is widely sought to be uh, avoided. Last week, if you'll remember, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the um, imperatives of God that flow from the indicatives of God. That was the language I was trying to to use, that the, the, the imperatives, what you must do, flow from the reality of what God has done. The command to do always flows and is empowered by the doing, first and foremost, not of the Christian, but of God on behalf of the Christian. We, as the people of God, Rejoice above all else in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Not in what we've done for him. Not in lifting to God, here's my good works, aren't you impressed? We come as the the hymn talks about, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, like I have nothing on, I need clothing, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, lest I die, or or I die. We bring nothing. And so what we rejoice in, first and foremost, is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. He has rescued us out from under the penalty of our sin. Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, living a righteous life, that we cannot and have not lived, dies a substitutionary death for sinners upon the cross, is resurrected from the grave on the third day in victory over sin and death. All of that done so that here today, each one of us, turning from our sin, looking to Christ, trusting in his work upon the cross for our sins, can be I wish this would hit us the way it's supposed to. Forgiven of my sin. Washed clean 
made righteous in God's sight. Why? Because I've impressed God? No, but because by his grace and mercy, according to his great mercy, Peter says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We can be brought then into the family of God. Those of us who were without hope and without God in the world can be adopted into God's family, made his very own children, who when Peter talks about it, says that because you're his children, there's an inheritance that is yours, that is kept for you in heaven, and you are kept, you are guarded for it. That because you are his kids, he is watching over you every day of your life and making sure that you get to your appointed end, which is union, fellowship, full fellowship in the light of his presence. This is good news. <laughs> this is good news. What God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That was my choir. <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir. The imperatives... What we must do always flow from that indicative, what God has done for us in Christ. But we err, and there is much error today, if we say that the indicatives of what God has done, this, this work of the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, means that there now are no imperatives. That's an error. That's an error to say that the indicatives, what God has done for us in Christ, means that it no longer matters what you do. There is no oughtness to the Christian life. There is no imperative. That is an error. And there's a lot of that around today. Do you want to learn a big word? You might know this word. Some of you might know it. I've used it before. But if you want to learn a big word, here it is. Antinomian. Antinomian. It's a fun one. Antinomian, it, essentially all that it means, it's, the, it's this heresy, it's a heresy that says that because of grace, because of God's grace, the law no longer matters. It's just grace. Live and do and conduct yourself in whatever way. The, because of grace, the law no longer has any place of our life. Antinomian, essentially anti-against Nomian, the, the law, what is written. There is, there is a movement and that has been around in church history that says that because of God's grace, because Christ has rescued us from our sin, there's no longer really any need to worry about sin because the law serves no purpose under this view. You're already made righteous. Go and it doesn't matter. The teaching is dangerous because it's half right. It's almost half right is why this is such a dangerous teaching. It's almost half right. Because the individual who has trusted in Christ is already made righteous. Romans 8, chapter 1. There is therefore when? Now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of spirit and death through Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel makes us righteous. We call that doctrine justification. It is a legal declaration that the one who has placed their faith in Christ, when God looks at them, he sees the righteousness of Christ. They are made righteous in his sight. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality. 
the Christian is made righteous. However, as we read our New Testament, it is clear that the given righteousness of Christ, this given righteousness, is the very thing that produces in us an obligation then to live a righteous life. Because of what he has done, we then go, and how could we live any other way, given what he's done for us? than to seek to live a life that is pleasing and according to his will, not to earn his grace, but because we've received it. (laughs) And because we have received it, when we turn and walk out, how else could we live? There is now an obligation to live according to his will. Peter says it this way, verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He calls the people of God obedient children. That's, I, I, that's, that's got some bite to it. I, I, there's so much instruction. There's the call first and foremost to obedience. To obedience. You have orders and you need to keep them. As obedient children, there is an ought, there is a live this way, there is a command that this is what the Christian life should look like. There is an obedience that is required, that is, that is, that is mandated. And there's also the identifier of a children, as obedient children. And so what that is going to require is that you have the humble position, you're not in charge. Why should we obey? Well, as obedient children, I hate to tell you, this ain't your world. It's God's. And as obedient children, we ought to, as his obedient children, humble ourselves under his hand and say, you know what? Maybe the guy in charge of this whole thing knows what he's doing and I ought to be an obedient child. As obedient children, this call for obedience, it's not a one-time occurrence like, Peter just accidentally, whoops, he t- mentions obedience. He's, he, he's there several times here in 1 Peter. In verse 2, it's right at the beginning of this letter. He says those who are elect exiles in these five regions, they're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. For what purpose? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And if you go on down later, verse 22 in the first chapter, he talks about having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. We could talk about what that means, and we will when we get there in, I don't know, three months. (laughs) Sorry. We, We will discuss what that means, but we'll go deeper into that. But obedience is just right here in this passage. Clearly, There is a call in the life of a Christian, a call to a life of obedience to your master, to your savior, to your God who made you and redeemed you. As obedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In fact, you know, we pray this every Sunday. Like, it's a dirty, it's, a, it's kind of a trick. You don't realize it, but when we pray the Lord's Prayer every week, that's actually a, an attempt to catechize all of us in a very good prayer, Jesus' prayer. And it's, it's an attempt to catechize us. And what is one of those prayers that we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
How is God's will done? There's this line, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who are we praying for there? Praying for ourselves. <laughs> in one sense, very much. That God's will be done on earth. How? Through his people. Through his people. We pray in that prayer, in one sense, a petition for a help. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make us those who work your will. May we be obedient children to you and walk out your will in this world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But why do we have to pray that? Like, I mean, why do we have to pray that? Honestly, we're all pretty nice people. You know, I mean, you know, we're, we're good community people. We're trying to be nice to each other. Somebody gets in a tragedy, you know, we all bound, we all get together and try to help each other out. Why would we need to pray for God's will to be done? We all have pretty good hearts, don't we? I mean, if we're out in the world having conversation with people, wherever you're sitting, we're all pretty, we all think we're pretty good people, right? Surely with pure, the, the pure motives that we have, can't we just follow our hearts, <laughs> And trust that our sincerity, we really think maybe some action is right. Can't we just trust our own sincerity and that will lead us in the right way? I hope that strikes you as a bit hilarious. Because if you know your own heart very well, you know that the direction that your heart pulls you oftentimes is an exact contradiction to what God would have for you. I had a, it was several years ago, a lady was texting me, I don't know how she even got my phone number through, I think, her employer, and she was texting me, and she had a question. I, I think she was wrestling with boy trouble or something, which is like, don't ask me. Don't, but anyway, uh, I'm not an expert in that field. Uh, but she was saying, basically, the question was, when you have two decisions in front of you, do you follow your head or do you follow your heart? You've heard that question maybe before? Do you follow your head or do you, like, I can look at it logically, this seems like the right decision. But boy, my heart really feels like this decision. And she wanted to know, should I follow my head and should I follow my heart? You know what I said? Neither. I don't follow either one of those. That's a terrible gauge. What you think or what you feel? The, no, that is not the important question you should be asking. You, your head, your heart, they are not worth trusting. Why? Look what Peter says. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You have a former ignorance that is constantly tugging at you to follow it. You have a former ignorance that is constantly tugging on you to be conformed upon it. Theologically, we talk about the depravity of man, that at the core of who we are, we're not as bad as we could be, not saying that, but at the core of who we are, we are fundamentally broken, fundamentally flawed. We sin, uh, we sin by nature and by choice. We don't, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we actually sin because we are sinners at the core of who we are. We, we are in rebellion since the fall of man. We are in rebellion against God. Our hearts are by nature bent in upon themselves. Even in the Christian today, Peter's writing to Christians. Even in the Christian today, there is this constant draw for our lives to be conformed to the passions that once motivated and formed us. It's like if you can imagine a clump of silly putty or something kind of, you know, it, it holds together a little bit, but it, it kind of takes the shape of whatever you want to make it, take a shape of. And you, you set it on top of a kid's building block, you know, and it's sitting there in front of you. And 
If you keep actively working on it, if you keep actively shaping it, you can make it into something. But if you sit and just let it rest, and you come back a day later, and you find that it has just kind of morphed down and it's conformed and it looks like it's taken the shape of a block. It's just conformed due to gravity, due to whatever the, the nature that it has. The natural pull will conform it to the shape of the block that it sits upon. Unless there is active work to keep it from going in that direction, it will. It's not a perfect analogy, but the Christian in some ways is similar. If there is not Holy Spirit-empowered effort to keep our lives from being formed to our ignorant passions that we used to once live in, they will be. They will be formed in the ignorant passions that we once lived in. This word conformed is also, you'll maybe recognize the term from Romans 12 too, where Paul admonishes to the church, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed. There's a contrary action. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And Paul sees there that there's a conforming of the Christian that is constantly pressing in upon them from outside of themselves. Do not be conformed to this world. There's an outside pressure for conformity. And there's an inside residual former ignorance and passion that is seeking to conform you. We're, we're, we're pressured from every angle. Outside, culturally, yes, but internally, our former passions are calling to us to live and to, and to conduct ourselves in some fashion. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, 12 through 13, he says, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You hear all the same language there? There's this passion that's inside of us. Let not your let sin reign in your body. Do not present your members, yourself, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but actively present yourself to God, yourselves to God as those who, here's the indicative imperative thing. Here's present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Because of this incredible work of God for us, we as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. A question that comes up I, sometimes is, okay, fine, but how much? Like honestly, how many of my former passions must I put down and how, many, how much of my life must be given to God? Can it, I mean, I understand you, Darren, uh, which is laughable. We should have more conversations. If you think this, I understand that you, Darren, you're really pursuing holiness and you're, you're up high and mighty. But, but really, people like me, I, again, we should talk. That's not the way this works. But anyway, uh, regardless, I hear this statement as though, well, is that for everyone? Must, how much of our life must be given to God? When he calls for holiness, how holy does he really mean? Like, I do a lot of good things. I might even read my Bible and I pray and I show up to church. I do all, you know, how much though, really, what percentage of our life can we keep, can we seek holiness and what percentage can we keep profane? What percentages can we, can we do this? Biblically, holiness was a total devotion. If an article was ever used for profane purposes, it was to be disposed of. It was to be broken and gotten rid of. It, holy meant that it was, it was reserved in totality for holiness. Jesus 
It says plainly in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That the call is not, Jesus, I want to give you so much of my life and keep so much for myself. It is if you want to follow me, your life is no longer yours, it is mine. Take up your cross and follow me. But really, must every Christian be super Christian? Aren't we all at different points in our sanctification? And the answer to that is yes, obviously. Absolutely. There may be those who struggle with what we would consider grave and serious sins. I'm going to shock you here, try to. That there may be those who struggle with what we would consider grave and serious sins that are actually far more holy than any of us sitting in here this morning. Because of the, the, the difficulty of their pursuit, their sought-after devotion to God may far, out, far outweigh our own half-hearted pursuit. They may fail in spectacular ways, and we may succeed in all the lukewarm ways that really keep us very far from God. Am I setting the bar too high? Am I saying that we, with this side of heaven, become some sort of sinless, perfect people? Holiness, we're going to all of a sudden take up the claim of holiness. No, uh, that's a Wesleyan doctrine of perfection. Um, you wouldn't, well, never mind. It, it's a Wesleyan doctrine of perfection. Uh, it, it, no, that's not what we're talking about here. But there is no Christian, no Christian, who does not make living to honor God their goal. All falling short of it in various ways, of course, yeah. By God's mercy, may he have mercy, but all at the same time aiming at his pleasure. It's fascinating. You think about, you know, we, we've mentioned earlier in this passage that all the church is going through, and the trials and the difficulties. And isn't that really the time that Peter should just say, you know what, I know you're going through a lot. You know, it's really tough out there. People are mad at you. It's not going well. Uh, the church is being persecuted. You know what? It's really hard out there. Just try to be a little better. In the midst of their tough times, everyone wants their sin to be special. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we want to say, well, my, my, I understand that's the call, but you know, don't you see my circumstances? Well, here's this church in all kinds of circumstances. And what's, what's special? The holiness of God. What's special? The character and nature of God. We may at times even know something to be sin, but we think that we have good reason for our transgression. You know what that's called? That's called hypocrisy. That's called hypocrisy. Now, this feels heavy. It's fine. But I, I want you to see, this actually is a positive call. Like, even though implied in the call to be holy as God is holy means, yes, a ceasing from your former ignorances, this actually is a positive call. It's a po it isn't a do not, it's a do. It's a be holy as I am holy. Be holy in all of your conduct. It isn't a negative call. It's a positive call. It is a call to be who you were truly created to be. One who reflects the character of God and who glorifies him with your life. If we go back to our lump of putty, you were not made to be block-shaped. <laughs> you were made to glorify him. 
And the call, because of these external pressures and these internal former ignorances, the call feels like um, this real restrictive, we can't, we can't bow to these pressures. But it's actually a call to enjoy and be who God has made for you to be. It is a positive call to glorify God with your life. God's call and work for your holiness is a positive call to turn from all that will ultimately dissatisfy you. And honestly, if I'm going to be honest, which I've been this whole time, I shouldn't say things like that. <laughs> Not that I've stopped being, anyway. Honestly, honestly this call uh, to, 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 to give to these things is not only to lead you to, to dissatisfaction, it is to lead you to hell. It is to lead you to hell. To choose not God, to choose sin over Jesus will lead you to dissatisfaction, absolutely. And ultimately, it will lead you under the wrath and judgment of God. And so we aren't just talking about light difference of opinion. We're talking about serious things here. So the, this is a positive call to get out from underneath that and to be who God has made you to be, to be holy as he is holy, to live life honoring to him, which is what you were made to do, which is what you were made to do, to honor Christ, to honor God, to glorify him, to live out the reality you were created for. Why are disobedient children so frustrating? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. Why are disobedient children so frustrating? Oftentimes. Oftentimes, well, and I got to caveat this, that when I'm not drowning my own sinful anger and frustration, but when I, maybe I've got it, you know, God in his mercy and his grace, I've held it together. And disobedient children are, are so frustrating because we know that there are times that if the child would just obey, just shut the TV off, get your shoes on, we're going to go do something you want to go do. Like, you ever have that instance when it's like there's something you've planned, a good thing for the kid to go to, and they want to go to it, but you can't get them to stop doing what they're doing to put their shoes on and go? And you're like, if you would just be obedient, you would walk into the fullness of your joy. <laughs> And it's so frustrating. You're like, come, and the kid is stuck in the passions of their former ignorance. What do you want to say? Good parenting is directing the child to an obedience, not to run some sort of prison system, but for the joy of all involved. Good parenting does that. Calls for obedience, not just to stop all bad behavior, but to see the joy and the blessedness that could exist in the harmony of obedience. Do we not trust that God has ordered the world far better than even the best of parents? That his calls for you and your holiness are actually for your eternal joy in him? Do we not trust him? Maybe that's the important question. Do we not trust him? We not trust that he knows better. To disagree is idolatry. It's to say, God, I don't think your holiness is what really is going to make me happy. I think I make me happy. You just put yourself on the throne and taken him off. You do not know better than him. He is calling all of us to something more, to live lives that glorify him. Have we failed? Will we fail? Oh my, yes. But each time, confessing our sin, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. Confessing our sin, trusting in Jesus anew each day, and taking up the call, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to seek to live holy lives as he is holy. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do the work in our hearts that only you can do. I pray that the good news of the gospel would penetrate so deeply into our hearts by your spirit, giving us new hearts, caught up in the joy of Jesus, that we would see the picture of this holiness as the true good that it is. And that, God, you would help us by your spirit here this morning, God, if you've worked in any hearts, work in my own heart, God, as I think about former ignorances and passions that war from within and, and the voices from without that war against, that, God, as obedient children, we would not submit, be conformed to those things, but that, Father, we would pray and we would say, my life is not my own, it is yours. And what I want more than anything is that you'd be honored in it, you'd be glorified in it, the gospel would be told through it for your glory and God for our ultimate joy. Do that work in our hearts, God. Satisfy us in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.